Hello and welcome to South Beach Sessions. I am Dan Lebetard and over the past few weeks and in coming weeks, we will be introducing you to more and more of our friends that are really supportive and have helped us and that we can't wait to work with on creative stuff. And today, if you do not know this person, I think he's responsible for a generation of comedy. I think his sensibilities since Funny or Die are something that have made me howl across a decade, more than a decade now, and I just really view him as an inspiration. I wanted to tell you a story as you've been following our radio show and podcast adventures. When I got in trouble with Disney, I went and bought a bunch of Dumbo elephants to make a joke in the studio of the Republican symbol and actually named Dumbo and a Disney product, and we weren't mentioning the elephant in the room. And in the middle of that, as I'm at the place buying and making sure to expense on Disney's accounts these Dumbo Disney elephants so that I could put it in the elephant in the room and make this joke, Adam McKay calls me and tells me that at any given point, he supports everything that I'm about and that we should work together on stuff. And I, I remember just staring at my steering wheel, just sort of with my mouth open and my wife, just, we couldn't believe what we were hearing. And damn, if the day didn't arrive where he has pushed me and supported me to make this move that has been so difficult to make with real and genuine support, because I knew we'd be able to do cool shit together when I got to the other side. So he's got so many projects out there. It's just crazy. It's not just succession and dead to me and just making cute documentaries on HBO and doing a film with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio on climate change and Meryl Streep. But now he's got a Death at the Wing podcast. It's hoops, it's politics, it's tragedy, it's the crazy-ass 80s. He's got an HBO thing on Pat Riley and Jerry Buss coming out and just a ton of projects. And we're just going to be doing stuff together. And I want to talk about his project here, Death at the Wing, first. But Adam, sincerely, I can't thank you enough for your support because I know you like to joke around and stuff, but you really did help us do this because we knew that we could uh, jump into the arms of somebody who would support cool shit. Yeah. I mean, I, I love seeing what you were doing. You were clearly like finding a unique voice during an incredibly unique and difficult time. And it just seemed crazy to me, man. It was like the Jamel Hill thing where she said Trump was racist, which I mean, at this point, don't we all know that's like a statement of fact, like even Trump supporters, I think, agree with that. And to see the flack that you were getting for some pretty basic, not basic, but some subjects that you were dealing with that really just felt like they needed to be dealt with. And and what I love about you guys, too, is like you do it, but there's always a sense of humor to it, too. It's but it acknowledges like none of us are any higher or mightier than anyone else. We're all kind of idiots in this crazy time. And you guys just do that really well. So yeah, I, I, it was, it was very strange. The show I was turning to as kind of like civilization as we knew it was coming undone was your show of all shows. <laughs> Somehow it was the Levitard show. You guys were dealing with like race and, our government and sports and yet still being goofballs about it. And it was the perfect blend during these last couple insane years. So I, I thank you and the shipping container for being sweaty and, and being together and kind of trying to chop through these crazy whitewaters we've been navigating for the last couple of years. 
And if you've been listening for a while, you know, and I can announce this, I'm proud to announce this on behalf of Metal Lark Media. We have signed lifetime deals with both Shane Bacalata and Tim Jerns, exclusive contracts. They are exclusive Metal Lark Media employees. I am so proud to announce that formally so that you guys can enjoy the uh, no objections here from Adam McKay, right? Tim Jerns may oh, be dead. Are, that's legally been vetted. Tim Jerns is going to do an audible book for you guys called Get Some uh, that's coming <laughs> out soon. And Tim Jerns is also doing a, a 10 part podcast workout series for you called This May Kill You. Um, <laughs> so we got a lot of projects. Uh, Bacalada loves you guys. Once he gets out of federal prison, which I think is in 18 months, assuming his good behavior keeps up, which so far it has, really wants to get into some, doing some business with you guys. And uh, no politics, of course, for Bacalata, just pure, pure sports. Just sports. Tim Jerns is dead. I don't know. I don't know how you're going to recreate these characters when one of them is dead and the other one is incarcerated, as you mentioned. But uh, tune in. Metal Arc Media, you don't know what we're going to make next. The thing that he made, Death at the Wing, that I wanted to talk about. You've been talking about this for a while. What was it about this period of time in basketball that was so fascinating to you? This is an idea I've had for, geez, like 10 years. Like I considered writing it as an article years and years ago. I was going to call like Slam Magazine. And it just came out of probably the, the same experience you guys had, which was the memory of the 80s into the 90s, that kind of golden age of basketball when it all just popped, where suddenly it became the coolest thing. And yet I kept remembering, like you would talk to people and be like, oh yeah, and remember when Len Bias died? And you'd be like, oh yeah, remember when Reggie Lewis died? What about Benji Wilson? What about Drazen Petrovic? And at some point I was just like, oh my God, like a lot of guys died in this time. And then I started looking at other sports and I couldn't really find anything like it. I mean, the NFL has CTE, the concussion thing, which really affected a lot of guys in retirement. But I really couldn't find any comparison to it, this sort of explosion of fame and wealth that hit the NBA in the 80s. And then this spate of deaths that really tragically hit these just rising, like serious superstars. So we just decided like podcasts are incredible for that. So we dove in and it took us in about 20 different directions. I was joking the other day, it's the only podcast where you're gonna hear Jerry West interviewed and Jane Mayer from The New Yorker. We've got Todd Boyd joins us. He's incredible. We talk to a lot of the people that are involved in a lot of these stories firsthand. We get into the death of uh, some people you probably don't remember, like Ricky Berry, Terry Furlow. And then we get into some of the bigger ones like Len Bias and Drazen Petrovic. And yeah, it, it's one of the more interesting things I've been involved in. And to me, it's like why podcasts exist. You're able to do something like this. What are the things in it that, without giving too much of it away, what are the things in it that you found most interesting as the reporting came in? Because you had the idea first, and then you got the benefit of the reporting, right? You didn't know much of what it is that you discovered by the doing of this podcast, correct? Yeah, I think that's like, that's how I love to do projects. I like to sort of find something that's interesting and dive in with the question and see what's gonna come out of it. And that's exactly what we did here. We didn't know if there was a common thread between these players. We didn't know what had caused the deaths versus what had caused other deaths. 
But what we really discovered was that it was, you know, and a lot of us know this somewhat, but the 80s were just a time of seismic change, like wealth for the 01% was exploding because of cable TV. Media was just, I mean, it's hard to even fathom how much media exploded in the 80s from the four pokey channels we used to have and the one or two newspapers we had in our town to suddenly... People like us are watching Len Barker play and reruns of bizarre movies and everything. And, and there was like a level of fame that just hit everyone mixed with all these tax cuts for rich people, deregulation, cutting, uh, you know, cutting, uh, geez, I just said cutting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, that's quite a mistake. And we're not, no. And the other thing about it is we're going to leave all of this in. This isn't going to be edited out. So go ahead. You can go straight back into promotion and just start with cunting. What's great is the, the, what I was trying to say is like deadly serious and kind of dark, which is cutting funding for mental health care. So, yeah, it, it, it's really interesting. The only other comparison I can think of is kind of when Hollywood exploded in the 50s and 60s. And you saw a lot of actors die from like alcohol and pills and car crashes. It a little bit compares to that. But then the second half of the story is how did the NBA get so good at being famous now? Because what you really see is the Reagan revolution kind of chew up all aspects of America. You see baseball with steroids destroy its entire historic record. You see the NFL just go into like ugly, dark, unseemly kind of areas like defending, you know, abuse against women and blackballing Colin Kaepernick for a totally harmless, peaceful sign of protest. And all these other leagues get dirtier and dirtier. But somehow the NBA is like the best at being famous right now. Like LeBron James is incredible at being famous. And of course, now they're staring at sort of the horizon line of the next level of their success, which is the international level and the China thing pops up. So, you know, it sort of leaves with a, a, an ellipsis, like, let's see how the NBA now handles the international waters. But it's really an amazing story. As you can tell, I can I can gab about it forever. Well, you just are so fascinated by this time because I want to talk to you about the Pat Riley, Jerry Buss HBO project that you've got going. And I find totally overwhelming, Adam, honestly, the sheer amount of stuff that you have going on, because I want to talk to you about your Sony podcast deal, too, because this sounds like a fun little dalliance where you're just doing something on the side, like these little pet projects where you're just super intrigued. So you throw some investigation and some resources at it. Yeah, people are always like, oh, my God, how do you have so many things going on? Well, the, the trick is we have a company, of course. So we have great producers who work for us and shepherd these projects. So day in, day out, I have like a great producer like Kevin Massick, who's working on Succession and he's working on the Lakers project. And when it came to the death at the wing, we had amazing producers. Uh, Jody Avergan was a guy who worked on 30 for 30 years ago. So he's amazing. And a bunch of other really talented producers like uh, Raghu um, and Levin. So, you know, having these people work with you takes a lot of the weight off of it. So I just get to do the enjoyable part. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. And you're right. The Lakers show kind of isn't really about what death at the wing is about, but it certainly situates itself right at the turn of the seventies into the eighties and the explosion of African-American culture is just a, the dominant culture in America. I mean, really that's kind of a major part of what that story was. 
And it's such an interesting time because it's African-American culture explodes, media explodes, and yet it slams right into like an upswell in white nationalism and flag waving from the Republicans. And really, it's kind of been the story of America for the last 40 years. I don't know if that storyline's really changed. You love these projects that have these macro themes, though, right? Because you're not just drawn to sports. You're just drawn to sports. I know you love sports, but you're drawn to where sports can be a symbol and a prism to allow you to tell these macro stories about the America around it, right? Yeah, to me, like sports is like goes under the heading of like sports, pizza, sleeping, sex. There's like four or five fundamental things that human animals love to do. So anytime you see like social forces, political forces, psychological forces getting into those four or five things, I'm immediately intrigued because it feels like, right, like everything else we're doing is so we can have those, you know, family, religion, you know, there's like these kind of like core things that human beings care about and everything else is in service of protecting those. So, I, I mean, that's why I love your guys show, because you let that stuff leak in. You acknowledge it, that it's part of sports, even though in a lot of ways we don't really want it to be, but it just is. You can't really resist it. I thought it was so interesting. Again, I will tell the audience, I cannot explain to you how supportive Adam McKay was during what felt like a turbulent time in America, I can't imagine you, a Hollywood elitist, with all of your historical <laughs> understanding, really historical understanding of the things that shaped America and American politics. You're a brilliant man on a number of different subjects. You're well-read on the subject of history and politics. I can't imagine how stupid it must have been from your vantage point to see all of this nonsense blow up around, well, Lebetard is saying that Trump shouldn't send them back chance he shouldn't encourage those and shouldn't encourage the inflaming of others and colin kaepernick kneels at a flag and these are just such silly things to turn the world upside down over it's really been you know and you saw it too a lot of uh, millions of people saw this coming it's been you know what 20 25 years when i just remember the first time i saw like the sanity drain from someone's eyes that like I respected was that first W. Bush debate against Gore, where Bush was just embarrassment, where it was clear this guy's completely incompetent. He's not qualified. Forget right wing, left wing. This is just about like having someone steer the country. And I remember a couple people I knew that I somewhat respected going like, I thought W. Bush was great. And I, I remember thinking something's changed. The gravitational pull is off. So it's always interesting, like you can see something coming, but you never know exactly how it's going to manifest in the idea of like QAnon. And like, I, I still, I was telling my wife the other day, maybe the most shocking thing I've ever seen in my life, and this includes like seeing a whale breach the water, you know, seeing a, a gorilla, a cocoa dude sign language and speak to a human being. Maybe the most shocking thing I've ever seen is that we elected Donald Trump president. I still can't get over that that happened. So yeah, it's, it's crazy. And I think in a way, that's why your show is so perfect because we're all jackasses. I mean, I made stepbrothers like I'm an idiot. But at the same time, we all have to live in this and we're all trying to figure it out. And I feel like 
no group, no voice does that better than you, acknowledging that we're complete idiots, yet at the same time, we have to figure some pretty serious stuff out. And I just feel like you guys balance that. And I, I'm excited, you know, to work with you on projects. Like, I can't wait now that you're kind of free and clear. Like, you and I were kicking around an idea the other day that I definitely think we should do a series and who knows, maybe it'd be a podcast. No, don't, don't give it away. That's okay. We'll leave it there. We can tell people at some future date what it is that we're doing. Just, we're going to do stuff together. Damn, getting secretive, legalistic. Step brothers too, with me in the role of Will Ferrell. (laughs) I can be the body type for you. I don't know where your relationship is with Will, but if you want to make, I just saw yesterday, just yesterday, I saw that they had made a Carlitos way too, and I didn't know it existed and it was terrible. No Pacino. It's awful. I think I can replace Farrell wherever you need me on Step Brothers 2 if you really want to just cheapen your entire comedy resume. I love it. I love it. Let's it'll be straight to a video. And I do mean video. I mean VHS and DVD. <laughs> and we'll only release it in uh, Turkey and Vietnam. The, uh, the Q doc that you're doing on HBO. I want to go back before this one was done. Billy Corbin and you did something for HBO. And when you go back to the Bush stuff, you must have found all of that fascinating. What It was called 537 Votes, correct? Yeah, and that's another example. Credit to you. You were the one that hit me to that project. I obviously knew Billy Corbin and was a huge admirer of his work. Uh, him and Alfred, I just think, are incredible. And so I had seen all their documentaries, and you told me about this project they were doing, 537, that was about the recount in Florida, which obviously I tracked. I was at SNL when it was happening and we were all following it. But Billy and Alfred with that unique insider Miami view, just even for me, there was like a bunch of stuff I didn't know at the time that it happened with that. So that was a documentary that was released on HBO through our company, Hyperobject, and absolutely loved it. It was released right before the election. I still strongly recommend people see it because you're seeing now there's a full frontal assault on voting. There's something like 150 to 200 different state uh, proposals out there to limit people's ability to vote, to make it harder for minorities to vote. So this is still very much like a super hot issue right now. The bill they just passed in Georgia the other day, which is borderline Jim Crow level uh, restriction of voting rights. Clearly, that 537 is just going to be relevant for decades to come, sadly. What did you find most interesting about that documentary? Oh, my God. The whole story about that mayor, that young hotshot mayor. What was his name? Alex Pinellas. Pinellas. Oh, my God. I didn't know any of that. The good looking guy who was going to straddle the line. He was kind of like a Clinton Democrat. He was going to be friendly with the Republicans. And the knife in the back, he puts in Al Gore's back, the kind of, you just see this pure careerist and opportunist. And it's kind of a guy like that. There's millions of them. I mean, that's how America ended up where we are now was a bunch of careerists and narcissists only worrying about themselves and their own path. But he was just an incredible character. I didn't know any of that. Also the fixer who worked with Elian Gonzalez, the older guy, remember him? Um, He was incredible. Did just all those internal political machinations of the Cuban-American community, Miami, Gore, the Republicans, and then boom, right when you think you know what's going on, Roger Stone drops in the middle of it, or does he? It's just perfect. It's creating fake reality, the 
fake riots that were created by the Republican operatives. It's an incredible story even to this day. I don't know if you've seen, it was jarring to watch it all in one place, the escalation, but I've just consumed so much of this over the pandemic. To go from Showtime, and you probably know this because you're more politically astute than I am, but to go from what Showtime did in four parts with Reagan, to go to 537 and see it 20 years later with Bush and Gore, to arrive at this Q-Doc that you did for HBO that's six parts, you can almost see it. You could follow the timeline in three documentaries to 40 years of American history where all this stuff escalates. I've talked before about like maybe we could, our company could produce a Ken Burns-like series about the Reagan revolution because it's really one of the giant events in American history, just completely like a, a switcher on a, a railroad, like completely changed the track that we were going on. Yet I think for a lot of people, they don't even really fully understand sort of the the forces that created it, how it happened. I mean, there's a bunch of great books out there that I've read, like Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, and Jane Mayer's In This Death of the Wing podcast that we're doing. She really chronicles it well. Invisible Hands by Kim Phillips Fain. Is a, she's a New York Times reporter. Democracy in Chains, Evil Geniuses by Kurt Anderson. More and more people are starting to really document it. And here's the thing I always tell people, look, if you're a Republican, this is a victory story. It happened. Like all this stuff is sourced. It's all real. It's all fact. And it's amazing how they want to kind of cover it up and pretend it didn't happen. But hey, if you're a right winger, you should be doing a dance about this stuff. But but there's no question. You're absolutely right. It all tracks back to the late 70s and the 80s. Rick Perlstein's another guy who really covers that transition well. He's also on the podcast. We get him to talk about how that all emerged. Yeah, it's crazy. And you're right. Those three pieces, that's not a bad way to track it. I maybe might start with Top Gun. (laughs) I can't believe that the Q documentary has what it has in it. I'm just made so uncomfortable by the idea of so much of America being fooled by that, Adam. Like, I don't, I feel like such a jackass for not having any connection points to understanding how America could be tricked by that particular set of nonsense. I mean, it's it's an incredible story. I mean, I think part of it comes from the fact, too, that in fairness to the people who bid on this, we're living in like crazy soaring times of income inequality. I mean, we're past the Gilded Age, the 1920s, as far as crazy wealth and crazy poverty. And there's kind of no outlet that really talks about that. Like, if you turn on the mainstream news, they don't talk about that. Like, if you listen even to Democratic politicians, most of them, with just a few exceptions, won't talk about that. So I think there's like this hunger for that narrative. And a lot of the Q videos start with things like, do you ever wonder why poverty is so rampant? Do you ever wonder why you can't pay your bills? So they're very crafty at using that kind of pain of people suffering financially to loot people in. Also, a big thing, too, is just the mystery. People love a mystery. Who is Q? It's so dark and shadowy and nebulous. And one of the things Colin Hoback, who made this series, did was he really just turned the light switch on and you get to see it all. So what started as this dark, powerful conspiracy, you turn the light switch on And there are these weird goons and kind of basement-dwelling weirdos. And i got to tell you, the last episode is one of the most jaw-dropping 
pieces of work I've ever been associated with. It is crazy. The one thing I'll say is he just totally pulls the tarp off who Q is and it's breathtaking. I mean, to me, he got it. Some people could say there's a little 1% doubt, but like, it's like a Kaiser Soze moment where he just busts the guy who's Q. It's incredible. You have some range here because I still got questions about the what I'm calling the Pat Riley HBO sports project, but it's really the Jerry Buss HBO sports project. And the cast, I couldn't believe when I started reading the cast for this. This is like the cast of a movie you assembled for this thing. Yeah, it's been kind of crazy. I mean, we made a decision early on that we were just going to treat it really seriously. Now, that doesn't mean we don't joke around when we're doing it, but we, like, shoot it on film. We decided to cast it with, like, A-plus people like John C. Riley, who, in my opinion, is one of the best actors around. And even the new people that we got are, like, really talented. Like, the guy who plays Magic Johnson, Quincy Isaiah, is just so freaking talented. Basically an unknown that we discovered in kind of a – not an open call, but close to an open call. And this kid is so charismatic and talented. And then after that, you just keep seeing people like Adrian Brody join the cast. Michael Chiklis is going to play Red Auerbach. And it's really becoming just an epic story. I know it's like one of my dream projects, as you can tell. I, I love sports and it deals with issues about race. It deals with issues of, you know, income inequality. It deals with the cultural change of the 80s. Yet at the same time, it's got a sense of humor. It deals with addiction. It deals with all that stuff. But it's kind of rollicking and kind of fun, yet beautifully done. We got Hank Corwin, who cut the big short with me, and Vice. He's edited the pilot, and members of his team are going to edit the series and Max Borenstein and Rodney Barnes, who are writing the episodes, Max Borenstein showrunning, are just crazy talented writers. Yeah, that's that's about as excited as I am about anything I'm doing. That one's that one's high up there. I just can't wait. Going back a minute on the things that Metal Arc Media wants it to be about, I want to point out to you guys the horror as Mike Schur is officially signed on around here. And Mike Schur, also with Adam, sort of responsible for that generation of comedy, that Mike Schur was a Saturday Night Live writer and was insecure and filled with doubt, didn't know how good he was. And the head writer was Adam McKay. And so you can imagine Mike Schur coming up, very good at what he does for a living, but running into a guy that is like Adam McKay on writing. And the reason I say all of this is because he mentioned John C. Riley and Adam McKay in his spare time, frustrated during the pandemic, probably bored because he wasn't working, just created Andy Ganjo, a character that was played by Ian Roberts, but you were in negotiations to get us John C. Riley. John C. Riley was going to be Andy Ganjo. And I, <laughs> and I love the way Ian Roberts did the character, but tell them the premise of what it is that John C. Riley could have done with that because you birthed a character that I can imagine in my head during the pandemic. So, yeah, the idea for Angie Ganjo was uh, that he or Angie Gango. I think he was Gango. I love that I'm a stickler for the pronunciation of a ridiculous fictional character that only 20 people heard. Um, but Andy, we've Andy also Gango signed him. Kind of we've like, also uh, signed him to a lifetime contract here at Metal Arc Media. We have the exclusive rights to Andy Gango or whatever he's called. I don't know if you want those rights. Gango has taken some dark turns in his life. He's gone kind of General Kurtz on uh, on the baseball world, so be careful. But Gango was a guy, party, hard partying, utility outfielder for uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, beloved by the fan base, known for shotgunning beers after a loss like they won because he got a hit. 
always out with different women, pictures of him doing handstands, riding motorcycles shirtless. And during the pandemic was the first time in his life he was ever really alone. And he was alone in his condominium in downtown Tampa Bay, which is a beautiful downtown. I I know you spent a lot of time there, Dan. (laughs) It's just gorgeous. And he's in downtown Tampa Bay alone in this kind of party condo. There's a stripper pole in it, but no one can come over. And for the first time, he's got to hear his own thoughts inside of him. And in the laundry room, people would leave books for other people to read. And there was a collection of poetry by some crazy poet called Rimbaud that he started reading. And then there was another book by this guy, Henry Miller, and this woman, Anais Nin, and he started reading this stuff. And Andy really started having thoughts about the world and his own identity. Then he found a book by this woman, Pema Chodron, about Zen Buddhism, and started really looking at his hangups with the material world. And he went into a bottomless whole of his own soul, basically, and kind of became a, a confused sort of spiritual poet. And you had quite the conversation with him. They went all over the place. Well, he I mean, was, this guy was rudderless. He was quite, well, he was, <laughs> he was questioning his sexuality for the first time. I do remember that. He didn't know. Just the loneliness of the pandemic, confronting thoughts. I'm really excited, Adam, by everything it is that is on the horizon for us, because uh, I really do appreciate that you love this stuff as much as I do. And I really appreciate more than that, how supportive you were throughout uh, what was a difficult time. So I cannot wait to work with you on stuff going forward because everything that you've, you're putting out these days is quality. Like I, and I love that it's just born Adam of your curiosities because that Q documentary is unbelievable to watch it. And you're just following your curiosities, trying to figure out how the hell America got here. Thanks, man. I, I'm, I'm just thrilled for you guys. And uh, as a friend of the show, my only note for the show is just turn up the heat like seven degrees. I want to actually feel how uncomfortable it is in that room, the shipping container. Just make it seven degrees hotter. And then also the heater should be a little loud in all the, t- like whenever you're recording the show, we should be able to hear the hum of it in the background or the air conditioning if you're just turning down the air conditioning. And I want three dogs in there with you. I just want the whole thing about 15% more uncomfortable. That's that's my first creative note as a friend of the show. <laughs> Boil them. Okay. John C. Riley, did you see that incidentally? Like when you guys were making Step Brothers, John C. Riley was a serious actor once upon a time. Then did you turn him into a funny actor and then he's gone back to his roots? Yeah, there's a bunch of like really quote dramatic actors who are actually hilarious. Ryan Gosling's another one. Amy Adams is one. And John C. Riley, we got him to do the very first read through of Anchorman when we couldn't get anyone to make it. And we did it in some like hotel conference room and he just slayed it. And the read through killed. And the head of the studio came up to me afterwards and said, That's the hardest I've ever laughed at a read through, but there's no way we can make this movie. It's too crazy. And, and so when we made Anchorman, our first call was to John C. Riley, but he was doing, I think it was The Aviator. And he actually had a moment of indecision. And I'm like, John, go make The Aviator. What are you doing? It's Martin Scorsese. And uh, so happily and with all love and respect, we gave him a salute, like, go do the Scorsese movie. And we were lucky because Dave Kector is one of the most talented, funny guys we've ever known. So he was able to step into it. 
But Riley always had an itch. And then for Talladega Nights, we called him and that was it. He was in. And yeah, he's he's crazy. He's Academy Award nominated yet, has been in giant comedies. He's also crazy. He's a great musician. He's recorded albums. He's toured around the country. I'm, I'm not kidding. Like legitimately a great musician. Did you guys know that Kenny Powers was going to be that? I thought I did. We had we had signed on for a movie those guys made, Jody Hill, Danny McBride, Ben uh, Best, I think was the third guy's name. We had signed on for a movie they had done, Foot Fist Way. That's a tiny little indie comedy gem. If anyone out there wants a treat in their life. And the second Pharaoh and I watched it, we're like, these guys are the next group of funny guys. Like the movie had us on the floor. So yes, we did. Although I think... HBO would admit it. They were a little terrified of it because it was satirizing a dark side of America. I mean, Kenny Powers, racist, sexist, abusive, like just a horrible guy. And so there was a moment where HBO almost blinked. But this is why HBO is HBO, because I then just said, no, no, you got to trust us on this one. It's going to work. They put it on. It worked. And then like, no one does this. Two weeks later, the head of the network called me. He was like, hey, man, Thanks for pushing us on that. It was a little uncomfortable for us, but you were right. And I'm like, no network does that. No studio does that. So, uh, yeah, we we really thought it was one of the funniest things we'd ever seen. What have you been responsible for in succession? Well, there's no question Jesse Armstrong is the captain that steers that ship. I mean, the reason I did it was I read his pilot and was like, this is one of the best pilots I've ever read. I want to direct this. I want to be involved to cast in the ensemble. So, you know, the pilot's a big thing. That's where you set the look, you cast it. And then through the years, I chime in occasionally. Like, I have the idea that Roman has the affair with Jerry, the lawyer, that they have a weird thing between them. <laughs> that was one thing I can <laughs> You're dirty. That's so uh, dirty. That is such a dirty contribution by you. It's not, I, I don't say that with any degree of pride. But, and here's another one that's no degree of pride the rap that Jeremy Strong did, I uh, co-wrote some of those lyrics with No, Will what do you Tracy. mean? No degree of pride. I love that. That was well, just it's, so it's both awful. horrendous and-, and cringe-inducing and at the same time, one of my favorite things ever. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's a credit that I'm branded with for the rest of my life. Oh, my God. That would be such a brag if I had written that. Are you kidding me? You can't be ashamed of that. That was one. No, I'm playfully ashamed. I love it, of course. <laughs> one of my favorite moments in the show. It was so, and he he acted it so well. Like, it, oh. it was so well done. He really brought it to life. That guy is just one of the great actors I've ever come across in my, you know, you remember like five or six actors that you bump into and Jeremy Strong is definitely one of those where you're like, oh, yeah, I've just seen one of the great actors walking planet Earth. And he's a terrific guy, too. Like, I don't say that in a fake Hollywood way. He's genuinely a decent guy. Is he a method actor? No, he's not full bore. He's not like Daniel Day-Lewis. you got to call me by the character name on set. But he's he's kind of closer to Christian Bale, whereas like Bale on set. And a lot of the actors do this. Amy Adams, they'll do the voice of their character when they're talking to you on set. They'll do the physicality and that's more how strong is. So he'll, he'll wear it, but he's not wearing it in a way where he's going to yell at you. If you don't call him by the character name. I love dead to me on Netflix. What was your influence there? You know, I got to give all credit in the world to uh, Gary Sanchez and now Gloria Sanchez producer, Jessica Elbaum. She really steered that one. So in that case, 
that was Will and I. I like read the pilot script. I gave some notes, gave a couple notes on the cut. And that was Jessica Obama, all the credit in the world. What do you do? Like, it just sounds like you just sit in your office as some oracle of great things that everyone else does the work and you just sort of sit there. I want, well, that's the deal we're making. The partnership we're making is McKay and I, we've got to be ambiguous about this for the moment, but we're going to be doing stuff together where we just sit there and everyone else does it. And every once in a while, he writes a cruddy rap and uh, the method actor does it brilliantly. And we'll go to the parties together, you and me. I, by the way, I'll take that as a summation of my entire experience with doing movies and television is write a crummy rap and the method actor does it brilliantly. That's it. That's it. You just put your finger on them on the absolute mathematical center of my entire existence. All right. We're going to let him go on that note. But just uh, to re <laughs> to recap here, OK, just so that you understand, I don't think we're violating anything when I say that Adam McKay and I are thrilled to just be doing stuff in the future together. He has been a very supportive friend. I am touched and honored that he's doing anything with us but the idea that he would support these many projects and officially i can announce it to the world now he is the junior advisor to the senior advisor in charge of ham here at metal arc media yes that is the official title the lawyers have written it up correct the junior advisor to the senior advisor or is the senior advisor to the junior advisor in charge of I'm ham? the junior advisor to the senior advisor's junior advisor of ham and Mike Schur is non-ham division, not you've allowed he's, him. He's still working underneath you just like at Saturday Night Live? Exactly. Yeah, he's a associate producer to the executive producer of the senior developmental producer of Metal Arc Media. Non-ham division. Non-ham division, always non-ham division. There's a real hard firewall between those two divisions. And if anyone tries to cross it, I'm a laid back guy. You want to see me get nasty? You try and cross that line, I'll get, my eyes will light up. <laughs> uh, thank you, uh, Adam. Seriously, it's going to be a thrill to make cool shit together. I can't wait, honestly, and so happy for you guys. 